0: been a little over a year since the arrival of COVID-19 and its accompanying stay-at-home and social distancing orders that kept many of us from scheduling in-person visits with our doctors for both regular checkups and, in some cases, more serious concerns. The result has been the exponential proliferation of telehealth in 2020. With regulatory initiatives aimed at expanding telehealth, including efforts to ensure equitable reimbursement and the use of a wider variety of telehealth technologies, it's clear that providers and policymakers are looking to make telehealth an integral part of our healthcare delivery system. Will they succeed in the long run? Welcome back to Mince's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, Health policy and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Neely Yolin, and joining me today from Boston is my partner, Ellen Janice. Ellen heads MINCE's digital health practice and advises healthcare providers, technology companies, and investors on the broad range of state and federal regulatory issues and reimbursement questions that arise in the digital health space. Welcome, Ellen.
1: Thanks for having me, Neely.
0: Thanks for being here. Also here today, and also from Boston, is my colleague, Cassandra Paolillo. Cassie, as she's better known, advises healthcare clients on a range of transactional and regulatory matters and regularly acts as a subject matter expert on telehealth and other digital health matters, HIPAA privacy and security issues, the corporate practice of medicine, professional and facility licensing, and Medicare and Medicaid compliance. Welcome, Cassie. Thanks, Neely. Happy to be here. Thrilled to have you both, and I am ready to jump in. All right, so one of the many things we've learned from the pandemic is that there are ways the healthcare system can very quickly shift both its policies and its strategies to be more accessible to consumers and more flexible for providers when the world necessitates it. Can you tell our listeners what occurred at the federal level at the beginning of the pandemic that allowed the shift to take place? Ellen, why don't we start with
1: you? Sure. Uh, One of the most significant steps that occurred very early on at the end of January 2020 uh, was the declaration of a public health emergency by Secretary Azar. That public health emergency declaration set the stage for a variety of actions by CMS um, that would impact reimbursement under the Medicare program. Prior to this, Medicare uh, had some of the most restrictive rules governing telehealth. And Medicare coverage and reimbursement was extremely limited, uh, such that telehealth was not really a viable option for Medicare beneficiaries. So, that public health emergency order set the stage. And then Congress passed uh, several key uh, pieces of legislation. One was known as the CARES Act, and the other was a a Supplemental Appropriations Act. Um, And both of those acts together expanded the use and reimbursement of telehealth during this past uh, 15 months or so. In addition to the statutory changes and the public health emergency declaration, uh, what really um, made the most impact, of course... Were the series of administrative actions taken by HHS to lift the various Medicare restrictions and open the door uh, for um, a loosening of the Medicaid program restrictions through a series of waivers? So um, lots of things occurred very quickly that had the effect of really changing the face of telehealth uh, during the next. Uh, 15 months or so, and allowed so many changes during um, the pandemic that were beneficial f- for providers and patients alike.
0: Thanks, Ellen. Let's dig into those legislative changes and the administrative waivers. What do you think they did for telehealth, and what was the impact that they had over the last 12 months? Cassie, can you give us an
2: overview? Sure. The legislation Ellen mentioned. Uh, First of all, lifted restrictions on the originating site for Medicare beneficiaries so that patients no longer had to be in rural areas and could be located anywhere, including in their own home, uh, to receive the telehealth services. The legislation also lifted restrictions on the technology modality so that services could be provided via a smartphone, provided that the phone had audio and video capabilities. The CARES Act also made some changes to coverage under high-deductible health plans, allowing the plans to pay for telehealth services before the patient meets their deductible, which has resulted in patients having to pay less out-of-pocket for telehealth services, um, which, of course, you know, increases access exponentially. As Ellen mentioned, the really impactful changes came via administrative actions. um, And following the passage of the CARES Act, CMS announced some additional waivers of the limitations on the Medicare reimbursement for telehealth services. Including a waiver of the limitation on the type of telehealth technology that could be used, and specifically allowing reimbursement for audio-only services for our evaluation and management services and behavioral health counseling and educational services. While there were still some technological restrictions in place for other services that required audiovisual um, capabilities, anytime restrictions are lifted to allow audio-only services. In any instance, access to those services will increase, especially for populations who lack access to reliable internet that you need for the video capabilities, or for individuals like many Medicare beneficiaries who may be less comfortable using technology.
0: So just to be clear, when you say audio only, that means I
2: could pick up the phone, call my provider, and the provider could bill for that service? Exactly. Exactly. So that, that had a huge impact on the increase of telehealth services for Medicare beneficiaries. And then on the state side, we saw a rise in states seeking Medicaid waivers to allow similar coverage for these audio-only services.
0: Okay. Hold that thought because I definitely want to circle back on state law initiatives. But before we do, I have to ask about one of the very pandemic-specific telehealth-related changes. And that's when the Office of Civil Rights announced that it'd be permitting covered providers to use any remote communication device or platform to provide good faith telehealth services as long as the technology isn't, quote, public facing, meaning that it cannot share the patient's information publicly. Can you provide some more details about this? What kind of HIPAA advice you might give to telehealth providers and whether you see a scenario where the loosening of the HIPAA privacy and security requirements lasts
2: beyond the current public health emergency? Absolutely. So this announcement from the Office of Civil Rights was really important for providers who, at the beginning of the pandemic, had never really ventured into the telehealth space, and then all of a sudden, overnight, had to pivot into using telehealth technology. So by sort of loosening the requirements on the security provisions, a provider could, for example, FaceTime with their patients just using their iPhone, which is important because, you know, a lot of the sort of regular audiovisual or other, um, you know, text messaging, things like that, that we might use every day might not meet HIPAA's really strict requirements for their security standards. That said, OCR did provide a list of vendors that claim to sign business associate agreements with providers and claim to be HIPAA compliant so that the providers could eventually get those technologies in place so that they'd be operating in a a more secure environment, which is certainly what we would advise to telehealth providers who are using a technology for the long term. You know, providers should always consider privacy and security risks whenever they're adopting a new technology, not only because of the HIPAA requirements, but also because of, you know, state laws uh, and other practice requirements, which may mandate the use of secure technology and properly maintaining medical records. And, you know, I think that this is probably an example of one of the sort of loosening of the telehealth requirements during uh, COVID that I think is temporary in nature. And once things have been resolved, I, I would imagine that OCR will go back to the, the former requirements and continue enforcing the privacy and security rules.
0: Hmm. That sounds reasonable. Just one quick question at the risk of sounding obtuse. When you say technology isn't public facing, can you give an example of what
2: would be problematic? Um, Sure. For example, not that anyone would do this, but you know, you couldn't use public Facebook posts to provide telehealth services. Um, That would, for very obvious reasons, be a big no-no.
0: Okay. Okay. That That is obvious. But say private messaging using a social media platform might be okay?
2: I think that would depend on... You know, sort of the settings on the social media platform. I personally would advise against it. I think there are, you know, more secure methods that can be used that are readily accessible to most people, including, for example, you know, FaceTime, even other secure messaging apps that you can get for for low cost or even for free.
0: Okay, sure. That makes sense. I want to go back, as I said I would, to some of the changes that were made at the state level to expand telehealth and loosen their own reimbursement restrictions for both Medicaid and commercial insurance. Do any states stand out at you as being particularly progressive?
1: Neely, I'll take that one. Um, And before I get to that, I think it's important to set the stage uh, on the state side of things because we have 50 states, uh, and within each state, the rules governing telehealth come from a number of different sources, making it in an extraordinarily complex regulatory environment. For example, um, state professional licensing boards like the Board of Medicine and other boards uh, have their own set of rules as to what, you know, what is an appropriate standard of care, how certain activities should take place, uh, the formation of the physician-patient relationship. The boards of pharmacies often dictate requirements around the issuance of a prescription uh, via telehealth. Um, You add to that the state Medicaid rules, state laws governing commercial insurance. And you put all of that together and you've got some very um, complex, often conflicting uh, set of rules for uh, providers to uh, follow When trying to deliver health care in a virtual setting. So, with that as a background, along with the federal public health emergency, uh, just about every state issued their own public health emergency. And like everything at the state level, uh, every public health emergency, uh, every state public health emergency was somewhat different. Uh, Sometimes it was an executive order issued at the governor's office that covered all aspects of telehealth. Uh, Other times, it might have been an order issued by the state board of medicine. Uh, Other times, it might have been an issue, uh, an order issued by the state Medicaid program. So within each state, how they addressed the public health emergency um, varied. But overall, the emergency orders did a really terrific job of relaxing Uh, so many of the state uh, statutes, rules, guidance documents that had stood in the way of widespread use of telehealth before the pandemic. So you asked, um, were there any states that stood out? There were a number, well, I would say most states came up with a a number of different rules or changes or waivers that were extremely effective in, in getting telehealth deployed. Specific state examples, for example, might be Maryland, where um, that state order allowed uh, practitioners to form provider-patient relationships uh, in an online setting or in a virtual setting. Many states, if not most, and Cassie alluded to this earlier, started to permit audio-only calls as as an appropriate telehealth uh, encounter. Um, traditionally, that had not been, and it was very clearly not an appropriate way to deliver telehealth. Uh, audiovisual uh, technology, um, synchronous interactions were really where the state laws were. Audio-only encounters were not permitted. But given that so many people, um, particularly seniors who were so affected by the pandemic, um, might not have had access to um, to computers and to um, you know, sophisticated technology uh, and needed care, the relaxations, allowing the use of telephone-only visits was really, really important uh, to get care to certain populations.
0: Thanks, Ellen. I'd like to stick with state law for just a little bit longer. We talked about reimbursement and licensure and technology, but really what we're talking about here is the practice of medicine or the practice of the professions. And that is very much governed by state law. And when you have technology companies and healthcare providers coming together to deliver care across state lines, things can get well complicated. Can you tell us about some important state law considerations for practitioners who provide telehealth
1: services? Sure, I'll, I'll start, and Cassie, you jump in if um, uh, if you want to add anything to it. Um, and you're absolutely right, Neely, that um, the uh, delivery of medical care or health care you know, is driven by um, the various state rules and professional um, uh, licensing rules that govern those professionals. And we have to look to those rules in the, in the first instance. And what we are seeing and have been seeing even before the pandemic are you know are a trend by these state uh, licensing boards to essentially say that you have to deliver the same standard of care in a virtual setting that you uh, deliver in a physical setting, so that if you're able to um, make a diagnosis and issue a, a treatment order or provide some sort of treatment through a, the telehealth setting you can do so, so long as you follow the standard of care. Uh, and that's really, you know, that's an appropriate approach, uh, I think, for uh, professional licensing boards to take. Uh, we, we certainly see some states that try to set out uh, in great detail how they think the care ought to be delivered in an online setting. And I think that that's a, probably a misguided approach because uh, at the end of the day, you know it's the individual licensed professional that is making decisions and clinical decisions and uh, using his or her judgment and they should be using the same judgment and making the same decisions based on their knowledge and uh, background and training uh, in a virtual setting that they're making in a, a physical setting. So, We've seen that trend begin before the pandemic is certainly increasing now. Professionals should be following the same standard of care. We we are also seeing, though, rules at the state level, guidance documents at the state level that want to make sure that the professionals are following, you know, basic standards um, when delivering care through telehealth. So for example, informed consent. Uh, making sure that the individual understands the risks and benefits of the virtual visit. That is not that there may be some additional risks, whether it's risks uh, related to the technology, if you're in the middle of a behavioral health visit, for example, uh, and all of a sudden your internet goes out, uh, that that the patient understands that there are certain risks associated with a uh, with a telehealth visit. Other important things we're seeing uh, at the state level um, from a a practice standpoint are states wanting to ensure that there are appropriate medical records kept, that there is appropriate follow-up, that in this setting when people may be either on the phone or using some sort of interactive chat technology, that the patient, you know, has been appropriately uh, identified and verified for that provider, especially services that might uh, require some age restrictions or age limits. So um, the state medical boards and other professional boards um, are definitely addressing sort of the, what I'll call the standards of care in a virtual setting.
2: Thanks, Ellen. Cassie, did you want to add anything? Um. One area that we haven't touched on yet that sort of in a lot of ways combines the state level requirements with you know overarching federal regulations has to do with prescribing in a in a telehealth setting, um, and specifically prescribing controlled substances. So this really before the pandemic very rarely came up because the Controlled Substance Act requires providers to conduct a face-to-face examination prior to issuing a prescription for controlled substances. So in most cases, the states were silent on that issue because the DEA already mandated a face-to-face examination. Last spring, um, in light of the pandemic, the DEA announced that it would be relying on provisions in the Controlled Substance Act that during a public health emergency, the face-to-face examination requirement could be waived. So, as of last spring, providers were able to issue prescriptions for controlled substances as long as they had um, conducted, a, you know, an audiovisual examination of the patient. Um, so, you still needed to have that face-to-face interaction, but it could be done via telehealth. So, that, that's one way that the federal government really expanded um, the use of telehealth in ways that we're, we're seeing have quite an impact for providers. Although it's difficult because it's not clear how this will play after the pandemic ends, how states will address the requirement if the DEA says that certain controlled substances can be prescribed based on a, a telehealth interaction, are states likely to then go and impose more strict requirements for their patients? Uh, so that's definitely one area where we've seen a lot of movement during the pandemic, but the regulatory landscape going forward is a little uncertain. Understood.
0: Um, I know we could probably spend an entire episode talking about the corporate practice of medicine, but I do want to touch briefly on it, if you can. Um, Maybe one of you could tell our listeners what they should be thinking about with respect to the corporate practice of medicine and how it interplays with telehealth.
2: Yeah, I think complying with the state corporate practice and medicine doctrines is really a challenge for larger telehealth companies that are aiming to provide services to patients in multiple states. And as you said, Neely, there is there is a lot to unpack here and I, I could probably talk about CPOM all day. Um, I'm not sure how many people would, you know, tune in for that, but yeah. you never know. Basically <laughs> telehealth, yeah. <laughs> telehealth services can generally only be provided. Through professional entities in states that have a a CPOM prohibition and there are just a lot of considerations that need to be made when it comes to forming a professional corporation, foreign qualifying the professional entity in multiple states, making sure that the you know shareholders, officers, and directors are appropriately licensed as required by the various states. and making sure that, you know, any sort of arrangements with the, the professional entity comply with state law. So that's definitely something that providers who are, are seeking to provide services in multiple states, which, you know, is definitely something that telehealth makes possible. Um, it just needs to be a consideration when they're deciding which states to go into.
0: Yep. Sure. Right. Another 50 state project for these providers. And that goes to the Mounting voices, I'll say, who are clamoring for some uniform rules in both insurance and coverage and reimbursement and licensure, and of course, corporate practice medicine, although those voices are really just saying to do away with it altogether, um, as opposed to having a uniform rule across states. Um, With so many regulatory rollbacks, as well as the service reimbursement and technology expansions, What do you think a post-pandemic world will look like? And what are the primary concerns with making permanent some of the temporary federal and state telehealth changes?
1: Sure. I think on the reimbursement side, um, we'll continue to see uh, strong efforts, both on the federal and state side, to make sure that the reimbursement levels uh, for telehealth services are equivalent to those of um, services provided, you know, in office. Um, However, the pandemic gave us a very concentrated period where so much activity took place, there was so much reimbursement that um, for sure on the federal side, we're going to see a lot of studying going on. Some of the bills pending in Congress actually require uh, cost studies to see, you know, what what did the costs look like during this last year? Was money saved because you you were able to provide uh, services uh, perhaps in a more cost-effective way? Uh, did it not matter? So there will be a lot of studying of those costs, and that may have some impact down the road on, on reimbursement if, you know, if it turns out that it was ended up being more expensive to provide services in this manner. On the licensing side, that's one of the biggest challenges because um, it was clear during the pandemic that providers were needed uh, across uh, in various places at various times. There were nursing shortages, physician shortages, and um, you know these professionals stepped up to the plate and went to the places where they were needed the most. And the states uh, stepped up to the plate and they waived various uh, licensing requirements uh, in different ways. Some expedited the licenses of professionals coming from out of state and others did away with the licensure requirement at all. If you were licensed in Connecticut, um, you could immediately provide services in New York without going through any process. You know, will we see a national uh, licensure process anytime soon for professionals in this country? I don't think so. We have such an entrenched um, state law uh, professional licensing system. Uh, it's, it's not going to um, uh, it's not gonna go away anytime soon. But we will see efforts to make it easier whether it's um, states using uh, the inter, interstate compact rules that allow uh, for easier uh, licensing if you have been licensed already in one state. We may see regional approaches to, um, to licensing that if you are licensed in one New England state, you can practice in another New England state. It certainly makes sense from a medical standpoint to um, to not have uh, you know licensure done at the 50 state level. So I think we'll see changes, but I think th- those will evolve a little bit more slowly. The direct to consumer, um, th- th- the proliferation of direct-to consumer offerings right now, I think we'll continue to see those, not just on the professional services side, but you know, greater use of technology and platforms integrated. Uh, with uh, each other so as to allow for all sorts of interesting wellness and uh, other approaches that will, you know, provide more offerings for providers and consumers alike. We haven't talked uh, that much about Medicaid, but on the Medicaid side, there is a lot of flexibility that state Medicaid programs have to deploy telemedicine. And I think we will continue to see the Medicaid programs actually lead the way in many respects in terms of uh, coverage uh, and reimbursement and improving access for individuals who traditionally had a great deal of difficulty uh, gaining access to appropriate care. So things are going to, um, I think, continue to evolve. Uh, We still have a 50-state healthcare delivery system with a federal overlay, and then you add on top of that commercial insurance uh, requirements and rules and reimbursements. And you, you know, you continue to have a, a pretty complicated regulatory environment for the delivery of healthcare and the delivery of uh, uh, telehealth. But um, I don't think anyone thinks we're going back to where we were um, uh, before the pandemic.
0: That makes sense. I mean, one provider here in New York said to me that our state governments and federal governments tend to be reactive instead of proactive. So for the time being, he anticipates things staying the same, maybe even progressing, but something can happen. You know, you can have a bad act or fraud or a really particularly egregious malpractice case, you know, doctor in New York, patient in Arizona, not following the Arizona standards of care, whatever the case may be, and that's when we'll start to see rollbacks. We'll be interesting to see if that does happen. But in his opinion, he thinks things will progress um, as opposed to be walked back until something big happens. And of course, that something big would happen at the state level or in very vari- at various state levels, and then. We'll see if other states start to catch on. Thank you both so much for being here today. That brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions about this or any prior episode, or you'd like to propose questions for the next episode, please email us at com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a couple of weeks.